The following podcast contains a conversation about suicide. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you may know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Recently, Grammy Award winner Mary J. Blige got candid about her mental health sharing that she credits her fans for helping rescue her from suicidal thoughts early in her professional career. And even though her mental health has improved over the last 26 years, it's something that she still works on daily. Today I'm here with Dr. Gary Small, a behavioral health physician and chief and psychiatrist at Hackensack Meridian Health. Thanks for being here, Dr. Small. My pleasure. So Mary J. Blige credits her fans for basically being her support system since they were really connected to her album that she had out at the time. And she believes subconsciously how she thought she couldn't die now is quote unquote what she said, how she was hanging on for them. And I think it's interesting that even though they weren't a support system that was standing right there in front of her, they were still a support system for her. And I wanted to talk about how it's so important to have a support system there for you when you're, you're feeling this type of way. So, you know, when people get isolated, it's not good for their mental health. And if somebody is already in emotional pain or physical pain, there can be a tendency to think, this is my way out. I'm going to kill myself. And that can be scary. But with social connections, whether it's fans, close relationships, that can help you overcome some of these frightening feelings. So I think, I think it's great that she came out and talked to people about this. It destigmatizes the whole area of suicidal thinking. And suicides can be prevented if we recognize them and we intervene early. So let's talk about some of those recognition signs because Robin Williams seemed like such a happy person on the outside. I mean, he was in so many different funny movies and things like that, but yet on the inside, he was obviously really torn and really hurting. So what are some of those signs that we could have, or family members could have recognized that he was really hurting on the inside? Well, I think sometimes it's hard to recognize. It can can be uh, really covered up by the person who's suffering. You know, there was a, a thanatologist who uh, was a mentor many years ago, early in my career. And he studied suicide. And he did a study where he looked at suicide notes and compared notes written by people who actually ended up committing suicide versus those who didn't. And he found a really interesting difference. Those who didn't commit suicide, their notes were more emotional and dramatic. Whereas those who actually ended their lives, it was more practical. Make sure you take out the garbage. Make sure you pay this uh, rent at this date. And that tells you that there's a real commitment to doing this. And I think it's very 
difficult for loved ones because often they blame themselves. And if you think about it, it's, it's an angry act. I mean, it's, it's leaving behind all these people in, in a very angry way. And, and the more violent the means, for example, using a gun is more terrifying than using pills or different ways that people commit suicide. I think it's important to look for depression. If somebody seems depressed, I mean, maybe that's time for a conversation and to be empathic, to find out what they're going through. One myth about suicide is that if you ask people about it, that's going to trigger the idea and they're going to do it. That's not true at all. And in fact, when I was in training as a psychiatrist, they taught me to kind of ease into the conversation. Because you start with, uh, how do you feel? What's your mood like? Do you feel hopeless? Often people who become suicidal are giving up hope. They feel helpless. There's nothing that can be done. And if they endorse those thoughts, then you might ask, do you ever feel like life isn't worth living? And they may say yes. And that's, that's not really a suicidal thought. That's, that's a, what's termed a passive thought of death. So in other words, if God took me, you know, I'd be relieved. Then if you follow up that question with, would you harm yourself? Many people say, oh, no, I'd never do that because of my children or because of this. And it shows you that they're still connected to the world and they wouldn't take their life. They're not an actual risk. But getting back to that thanatologist study, there are people who talk about suicidal thoughts, but they're not suicidal. It's a way of them expressing pain getting attention from others, mm -hmm. engaging them. So I think it's very important to think about those people who have meaning in our lives and to connect with them. Yeah, and especially in Robin Williams' case, it was just so shocking that, you know, there was this whole unseen world for him. And I know that it's probably very hard, especially for any loved one who you know, blames themselves for not seeing the signs, quote unquote. Um, but is there anything that they could maybe recognize that they can do to help these people? Well, I think if you feel that someone you care about is depressed, help them get help. Because it's, it's these severe depressions that often lead to suicides, or suicidal thinking. If somebody has a past history of self-harm behavior, I mean, that too can be a red flag, that, that they're at risk. Or if they come from a family where somebody has committed suicide, someone close to them or even a friend, that can be a risk. And there have even been clusters of suicide among young people, among college students. Uh, there have been on the internet, people communicating about this. So we're influenced by others. And spending too much time with negative people, with people who are thinking in that way, can sometimes steer an individual who's at risk in that direction. Yeah, and, and, and life, life events could also probably help this as well. I mean, Mary J. Blige mentioned how one of her biggest pain points was her divorce in 2016 saying that ending her 13-year marriage led her to feeling lonely and sad. And, and these two can go hand-in-hand hand with, with all of the things that you were mentioning. Yeah, loss is a, is a trigger 
to these kinds of feelings. And it could be loss of a loved one, it could be loss of a job, divorce, all kinds of tragedies that people experience. And those are the ones we really have to keep our eyes on to try to help them. And how could we, you know, being a friend or being a loved one, help this individual other than listening? Well, it depends on what's triggering the suicidal thinking. I mean, some people have chronic pain that they feel there's no escape. I mean, suicide is a way that some people who are desperate see a way out. They've maybe tried everything and they see no solution to either their physical, mental pain or both. So trying to help people see there are other solutions. Of course, being a psychiatrist, I'm a big fan of helping people to get professional guidance, treatment. If, they're, if they have a depression that's treatable, treat that, and those suicidal feelings will lift. But there are other mental illnesses that can lead to suicidal thinking. Bipolar disorder, manic depressive illness, severe anxiety problems, obsessive compulsive disorder. If you feel that you've tried everything and you're suffering so much, that's when these kinds of thoughts and feelings strike. Now, fortunately for many people, they have religious beliefs or personal beliefs that uh, are against any kind of suicide. I mean, that's the last thing in the world they want to do. But in other, in some cultures, you know, there's ritual suicide. If, if you're disgraced, this is mm-hmm. the, the way out. So I think cultural factors need to be taken into... Into consideration, definitely. And Mary J. Blige mentioned, too, that as a young girl, she was sexually assaulted, and singing was an escape was an escape for her. Do you think that maybe traumatic events like sexual assault or abuse, et cetera, more than not lead to different issues of depression and manic depressive disorder? You know, certainly uh, early childhood trauma can be very significant. Uh, I and others have studied childhood loss, divorce, loss of a loved one, and they clearly predispose people to mental problems later in life. I mean, these are difficult experiences to overcome and to deal with, but they can be dealt with. And often psychotherapy can be very important and very helpful in helping people understand and gain perspective on these early traumas so they can move forward in their lives. And now is it important for for all these early traumas to be basically inspected or, or to seek help or treatment right away? Or is it okay to or is it okay to prolong it for, for years before you realize you actually need help? You know, everybody's different. I mean some people have horribly traumatic childhoods and they do great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're resilient and they're strong and it doesn't affect them. I, I don't think those people necessarily need treatment, but others are more vulnerable. You know, what tends to happen is that when people are suffering, that's when they get help. If it's not bothering them, they're not going to get help. Mm-hmm. And it's, I almost think to myself, you know, if if a friend of mine were to go through a loss or anything like that right right at this moment, of course I would recommend to them, like, you might want to, like, talk to someone so this way 
you know, you feel a little bit better about this or understand it more? Do you think it's important to to do things like that when you experience a loss to immediately go and and talk to someone about it? Or, or is it okay to, to kind of, you know, let it go on its own? Well, you know, it depends on the conversation. I mean, if, if you're concerned about your friend and the first thing they say is, well, I'm really depressed, well, go talk to somebody. They may feel, well, why not, don't you care about me? Why, yeah. why don't you talk to me? So I think, you know, you, you want to start out with showing that you care. I mean, if, if you do care about that person, hear them out, understand them, listen to them. I mean, you know, so many of us, we're, we're all distracted by our devices, multitasking. There's so much going on in the world. We're, we're, we tend not to listen to each other. And that's an important uh, talent yeah. to develop and to nurture because it not only serves those around us, but it serves us because it makes our own lives more meaningful because we feel more connected to others. Often people who think about suicide, they're feeling very alone. And so that's one way we can help. But if you're concerned about that person, certainly encouraging them to get some help is important. And, and then if there's pushback, if they, oh, I don't want to see a shrink, you know, they control you and all that kind of business, mm-hmm. you could even help them with it. You know, maybe you, you know someone who is a therapist and they could talk to that person. Uh, there's lots of approaches that you can do to destigmatize it and help people overcome their fears. You were mentioning listening and being a good listener. What are some ways that, you know, we could be better listeners? Are there, are there any kind of steps that we should think about that could make us better listeners? Well, I think the first thing is to try to quiet your mind a little bit (laughs) because there's a tendency to think ahead Mm -hmm. and to anticipate what the next thing is. And so you're, you're kind of distracted by your own response and not really listening to what that person is saying. Another misstep is that you, you kind of change the wording from what you hear and the person feels like, well, you're putting words in my mouth. I didn't really say that. I didn't say I was scared. I, I said I was worried. You know, so you know, careful listening is important. And, and if there is pushback, they say that, you, know, you can just say, oh, you know, you're right. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear you right. Thank you for telling me that, you know, to, to not get defensive and to try to stay with them. Because look, we're humans. To err is human. All of us are going to misstep and make errors, but understanding that and and modeling for the person how yes we all make mistakes but we can bounce back from it. It's you know it's not really you know we all fail throughout life. We have little failures, and what defines a person is how you bounce back from those. So, are there any natural remedies? So, I was doing some some research on on depression and and suicidal thinking and things like that. So. And I was reading how, how there are some natural remedies that you can go about helping with your depression or your, your suicidal thoughts. And some of those being St. John's wort or folic acid, different foods. Are there any natural supplements that we could use to kind of help us with this, this mindset that we might be in? So there's a lot out there. Uh, when we start talking about supplements and natural remedies, it's challenging. Because it's not like medications that the FDA has approved. Mm-hmm. 
So to get a supplement on the drugstore shelf, there's a different kind of claim that the manufacturer can make. And you can, you know, you can make a claim that this supplement uh, makes your brain cells happier in the test tube. Yeah. That doesn't prove that it works. You know, to really prove something works, you have to do a certain kind of study where you have a bunch of people who have the condition and they're taking a placebo or sugar pill and another group that is actually taking the active ingredient. And that way you kind of factor out the so-called placebo effect, which actually works about 30% of the time. The trouble is it doesn't sustain itself. In fact, if you and I had taken a placebo this morning, we'd probably be feeling a little better right now. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an unusual thing that our minds do, that placebo works. But you really have to show that that ingredient is above and beyond a placebo effect. And most of these supplements haven't shown that. That's the gold standard. But there are studies showing that some vitamins and supplements, if you take them, they're associated with a better mood. For example, omega-3 fats or fish oil. There have been some studies showing that in countries around the world where people are more inclined to consume fish, which has omega-3 fat, there's less depression. Now, that level of evidence is not as strong as comparing it to placebo, but it could have an effect on some people's mood. So that's one. Another, uh, there's a, a spice called curcumin, which is a component of turmeric. And uh, this is a, a particular spice that I've studied over the years for memory because it has ingredients that, are, that reduce inflammation, do other things to the brain that seem to make the brain healthier. And some of the studies we've done and others show that it may help with depression. But you know the effects of these kinds of supplements Another one is Sam E and some others. They don't seem to be as strong as what you'd get from an antidepressant. So one of the problems with going the, the natural alternative route is you're going to avoid getting a real treatment that we know can help. I like how you mentioned this, this spice because it's not something you would normally think of. And you think of natural remedies, you think of like this hocus pocus type of stuff, um, but would would you marry it together with antidepressants to make like the ultimate cure or? Well, you know, certainly people can try to do that. Unfortunately, these studies are very expensive. They take a lot of work and you gotta raise the money and get the volunteers. So I don't think it's, as far as I know, it's been studied in that way. But I bring it up because I got interested in it because I was studying memory and how to help people with their memory. And there have been some studies, for example, in India, where they find there's a lower rate of memory loss in India. So one thought was maybe it's the curried food. And mm -hmm. curcumin is part of, makes curry yellow. So we found a form of it that gets into the body, is bioavailable. And we did the study with people with just very mild memory complaints. And we happened to study their mood scales as well. And in addition, in addition to helping with memory, it seemed to help with mood. Not quite as strong an effect, but when I looked at the scientific literature, there have been other studies showing that. And it's interesting, age-related memory loss and depression share a lot of uh, underlying 
physiology or, or body mechanisms. So if you reduce inflammation, if uh, you get exercise, it helps memory and it helps mood. Oh, I need to definitely get my hands on some of those spices. I've always been told, well, you don't have a good memory because you have too much in your brain already and you can't fit anything else in the slots. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, you can go after the spices, but it's tricky because, you know, how much spice, what form of spice. When we did that study, uh, we, we raised money from foundations. That took us maybe six months, but then it took us about a year to decide which formulation to use. Uh, because, you know, this person, this company had this one and that one. And, you know, there have been some studies showing that if you eat spicy food more often, your memory score is going to be better. Wow. But how much and what kind of spicy food? You know, so it's it's tricky. So I, yeah. I would not uh, think that you're going to cure your depression or your suicidal thinking if you go out for Indian food once a week. Yeah. And I, I feel like everybody's brain is different as well. So it probably the dose for you might be a different dose for me in terms of how this would even work. Yeah, it hasn't really been studied systematically that much. And in fact, uh, we're planning with uh, curcumin, we're planning a follow-up study uh, at Hackensack uh, to look at it in a much larger sample to see if we can replicate the findings. Ooh, very interesting. So when you come back with that, let us know. I will so that do that. We can be your taste testers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at at risk factors for depression and and things like that and suicidal thoughts, do you see more men versus women experiencing this, or or there being a big difference? There actually is a difference. Uh, women have a greater risk for depression than men. We're not entirely sure why that is. Um, we, knew, we do know that women uh, tend to talk about their feelings more than men. You know, I knew when I grew up, you're not supposed to cry. You know, mm -hmm. big boys don't cry and all that kind of thing. So there's a natural tendency to want to suppress those feelings. And in fact, some family studies of people with m mood problems show that in, in many families, there's more depression in the women and more alcohol and drug abuse in the men. So how the different sexes cope with these kinds of feelings or chemical imbalances in the brain may dictate how they respond. And also we know that um, women and men have different hormonal environments in their body. In fact, most women spend most of their lives in an estrogen uh, deprived state. We did some studies looking at uh, the use of an antidepressant in postmenopausal women, and we found that those who were taking estrogen replacement therapy actually did better wow. with the treatment of depression than those who did not. Wow. Do you think it's because of the lack of estrogen within them or, or that they, the antidepressant wasn't enough? Well, I think it was probably a combination of things that uh, part of what was contributing to the depression was probably low estrogen levels. And so the combination of the two seemed to give them more of a lift. Wow. So we were looking up yesterday and suicide is actually the second leading cause of death in people ages 10 to 24. And 10 years old is just so young. And I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, you, you think back and you're like, what are the stressors that, that a 10-year-old is facing? And, and is there any way that we could 
see or recognize symptoms in a, in a 10 year old. I mean, a, an older person, it might be a little harder because they might be living on their own and there's different factors in their lives. But a 10 year old, you know, how could we help a 10 year old? Yeah, this is very sad, but it's very true. And it turns out one of the upsides of aging is you have less anxiety and worry. You're less subject to peer pressure. So when you're young in that teenage, childhood, young adult age group, you're thinking about what all your peers are doing. You're thinking about, well, how am I, I gotta have a family, I gotta find a mate, I've gotta have a career. A lot of pressure people put on themselves. I think it's, it's worse thanks to social media. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have this FOMO, fear of missing out, and everybody else looks like they're having more fun. Uh, a lot of pressure from parents to achieve. So this is a very tragic situation we're in. I think it's gotten worse because of the pandemic. These kids are isolated. They're not socializing at school. The, it, that pressure is intensified. But it's important for parents to look for signs that your kid may be having issues. Is a kid isolating? Do they have friends? Uh, are they getting in a lot of trouble? Uh, a lot of times they're not going to tell you they're suicidal. They're going to act out. They're going to misbehave and cause problems. Or maybe they don't even realize that they're suicidal being that young. And sometimes uh, suicidal behavior can be indirect. Uh, you know, risk-taking behavior can be a form of suicidal behavior, uh, not being conscientious. And now, if a child that young is feeling this way and and is able to kind of cope out of it, is there a risk for them feeling that way again in the future? Certainly if you can identify an event or a stressor that is triggering this. If that stressor returns, then that risk would come back. So I think it just depends on the individual. And I wanted to talk a little bit about facilities and treatment facility as well. Um, Michael Phelps actually recently brought up how he sat alone in his bedroom for days just wanting to die. And he was a decorated, and he is one of the best swimmers that we've ever known. And he worked so hard for that moment of all of his Olympian and all of those medals that he received that you probably think, okay, now what? I worked so hard for this, and now I'm done. And he actually spent 45 days in a treatment facility. And I wanted to talk to you about how people are scared of treatment facilities. People, there's a stigma around them and how people think that they're like the movies. And I wanted you to bring light onto how that's not true. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. It's not all cuckoo's nest like we've seen in the movies uh, where electroconvulsive therapy is a punitive rather than a therapeutic intervention. So at Hackensack Meridian Health, we have many treatment facilities People do very well in them. We have professionals that are very compassionate and try to help people with their struggles. And we use many different approaches. Sometimes it's medication. Sometimes it is electroconvulsive therapy, which in, in some situations can be the, mo- the most effective and safest treatment mm-hmm. for a severe depression. So I, I think people need to understand we're not there to punish people. We're there to help people. And we want to get them out of the hospital 
as quickly as we can, but not too soon because we don't want to put them at risk again. I like how you mentioned electric convulsive therapy. So my mom is actually an ECT nurse. Mm -hmm. So she's very, we're very familiar with ECT and all that kinds of stuff. And, you know, she, she really shed light to me at least that it's, it's not this scary thing. It's really something that could help alter the brain waves and, and really help someone in their way of thinking. Yes, it's given in a very safe, uh, controlled setting. And in fact, in, in many health systems, about half of the ECT treatments are done on outpatients. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's something that really gets people over the hump. Often they're put on an antidepressant after that. And I've seen it um, have remarkable effects. Uh, you know, and it's not just depression that can respond to it. I recall a patient when I was a psychiatry resident in training in Boston, and we were going on our rounds in the hospital, and there was a patient who had um, had been mute for about a month. And they had done lumbar punctures, and they found some white cells in her uh, spinal fluid, and they thought it was some kind of brain infection or encephalitis. But when we examined the patient, there were indications that her mental state or lack of awareness was not from an infection, but was from a mental problem. And so we gave her a therapeutic trial of ECT. Mm -hmm. Mind you, she had been mute for a month. After the second treatment, she came to and said, where am I? She spoke for the first time. So it, it really can have a very sudden and impactful effect on people's lives and bring them back to life. Wow, that's amazing. Is there anything else you wanted to share about about this topic? You know, I think that suicidal thinking, it's more common than people realize. It's an indication that there's something wrong in that person's life. And it's... It, can often be a cry for help, and we need to give these people who are suffering that kind of help. I mean, if it's depression, bipolar disorder, or many different forms of mental disorders, it can be treated, and it can improve. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Small. Glad to be here. Thanks. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you may know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.